Hello everyone. This is the very first episode of Lone Star State of Crime. I am Liz. I'm a native Texan and I'm really interested in uh, true crime of all kinds. And I'd like to cover Texas specifically. Um, And I hope that uh, you'll listen and enjoy it. Um, And I just want to say off the top that, uh, you know, my interest in crime is is really about understanding or trying to understand why people do the things that they do. I think in hopes to be safer and to maybe be more aware of what might be coming or maybe how to prevent uh, violent crime and even like white collar crime from happening. I mean, I think those kinds of things, learning about behavior and understanding why people are motivated to commit crimes is really interesting to me. And I, I never want my interest in that to be offensive to folks, like um, to, to seem gratuitous or something like that. So I always want to show respect and compassion to victims and their families. And um, I, I never want this to seem like entertainment, I guess, um, even though I know it's, it's some of the true crime podcasts are super entertaining. Um, I guess I don't want to be flippant in my like exploration of crime. So anyway, that's all to say, you know, kind of what I'm trying to do here is to learn and explore. And, um, so anyway, I'll just jump into my first episode, which is, um, just a little bit of backstory. So I grew up in Houston and, um, my mom used to tell us that, uh, you know, if you don't behave, uh, you're going to be found floating in the Buffalo Bayou. <laughs> and, um, the Buffalo Bayou is a, a river, uh, you know, sort of winding through, uh, this, the center of the city and, um, and eventually connects, uh, you know, flows down to the coast in, in Galveston, um, and, and connects, I think previously to, before it gets to the coast, to the San Jacinto River. And um, so I, I, I just grew up with that image in my mind. Um, and so when I really started planning this podcast and thinking about what I wanted to talk about, I thought about what she used to say about the bayou, and I wanted to see if there were actually some crimes associated with it. Um, and I did find that there are. Um and I think based on everything that's been going on recently, I'm recording this in November of 2020, um, the, this case I'm about to discuss was really interesting to me and sort of profound. Um, and so I'm sure you'll understand why once I get into it. So, um, so um, we are going to discuss... Uh, the crime committed against a man who was found floating in the river um, on Mother's Day, May 8th, 1977. Um, a gentleman by the name of Joe Campos Torres. Um, the body of this 23-year-old man was found floating 
in Buffalo Bayou um, and what would be established through an investigation and court proceedings was that several Houston Police Department officers caused the death of Torres. He was severe, <clears throat> excuse me, severely beaten and thrown into the bayou where he drowned. His death and the failure of the courts to bring the perpetrators to justice resulted in riots and continuing protests. So, um, and I, of course, I realize these kinds of things have gone on as long as we've had organized police departments. Um, I still, I guess, you know, I was born in 73. This happened in 77 and I was living in that city. So I just, I find that um, so interesting that um, that occurred and it, it so mirrors what's still going on today. And I just also would like to say, you know, I'm not a cop hater by any stretch. I, I, I view service in a police force as a, as a public service. And I feel like when people are putting their lives on the line to serve the public, um, those folks deserve our respect and, and our support. But absolutely, of course, there are some egregious cases of, you know, uh, like unnecessary violence. I'm sure there's also some real fine lines where you might not know what's going on exactly. Um, and maybe, you know, your training is not maybe guiding you to make the best decisions. Or, I mean, I, I can't even speak to what might be going on in some of these situations, but I'm just trying to give both sides the benefit of the doubt. Um, and I, of course I can only imagine if I, if I had a loved one who was murdered by the cops, I mean, my grief and my rage would just be like, massive. So I, I, um, I in no way, uh, want to like minimize either side or excuse the actions of the police. But I just wanted to say, you know, I, I support the police and I've had, um, in general, and I've had some awesome support and assistance from police as a single woman, you know, throughout my life. So, um, so in my research, I found that um, this injustice and the resulting civil unrest brought about an internal affairs division within the department. So they initiated that practice as a direct result of this killing. Um, I also see that Houston area activists are still commemorating the death of Torres in a, in a peaceful walk through the city that commemorates the, I'm not sure if it's the, day of the murder or if it's another date, but I think it is the, the anniversary of his death. Um, so Joe Torres was born in 1953. He was raised in poverty in the barrios of Houston. Um, he was an active person and a karate enthusiast. Um, he was an American citizen um, and he served in the U.S. Army. Um, it, it also appears that he did drink to excess on occasion and and I only mention that because it is, um, I guess, um, part of the story, really, of the event that led to his death. So I'm not not blaming him for his death. I'm just saying um, his friends and family report that he did have some drink a drinking problem. Um, and I read that, uh, you know, he, he did drink to excess on occasion and that um, he 
his drinking was really brought under control through his military service. And that was seen as a really positive thing in his life. Um, so at the time of his death, he was working as a glass contractor. And that's really the extent of the information I have on, on, on Torres. But on May 5th, 1977, he was arrested at an East end bar for disorderly conduct. Um, a fight broke out in the bar and Torres was restrained in the bar by staff and the police were summoned. Uh, six officers responded to the bar. And it seems like from the documentation of the event that the arrest didn't go well and that perhaps Torres was intoxicated. Um, some reported that he, sometimes when he drank to excess, he became aggressive. So I did see that in some of the um, research that I did. Um, the six officers took Torres to the hole, an area near the bayou, um, and they formed a semicircle around Torres, who was handcuffed at the time, and they beat him severely. The officers then took Torres to the jail, but they were unable to book um, him because the sergeant um, overseeing the booking process said that he was too severely beaten and needed to receive medical attention immediately. So um, they he, the the sergeant ordered the officers to deliver Torres to Ben Taub Hospital, which is a, a nearby trauma hospital that's that's still operating Houston, from what I know. Um, so the officers returned, it, it, rather than taking Torres to um, Ben Tab, they took him back to the hole. And it's my understanding that this place called the hole is a location like sort of on the bayou. Um, so the officers resumed beating him there. And it, it ha it's my understanding that at this time he was not still cuffed. Um, so it's been reported that Terry Dennison, age 21, and Stephen Orlando, age 23, were the ringleaders of the beating. At this time, Torres told the officers that he served in the U.S. Army, perhaps to try to sort of humanize himself to them um, and maybe to get you know them to stop beating him. Orlando at this time is reported to have said, Let's see if this wetback can swim. And then threw Torres into the bayou. Um, a 20-year-old officer who was one of the six involved, named Carlos Elliott, age 20, uh, revealed the events of May 5th, four days later when the body was discovered. He was granted immunity for his testimony in court. He had only been on the force for two months at the time of the murder. So maybe that's why they were, you know, they were also allowed him the deal because he had, you know, he was a newer officer. Um, after the event, Elliot claimed that Orlando ordered him to destroy the record of arrest of Tortoise. Orlando repeatedly told Elliot, shut up and don't worry about it. Whenever Elliot was like, hey, what are we going to do about this? and was concerned about his participation. Um, Orlando again ordered Elliot to be silent, and Elliot did report 
fearing retaliation should he disclose what happened to Torres once the body was found. Terry Dennison and Stephen Orlando were charged with murder. Three of the other officers were fired but received no criminal charges. <laughs> the trial did not uphold these charges. Rather, Dennison and Orlando were, con were convicted of negligent homicide, which is a misdemeanor. And in sentencing, Orlando and Dennison received a year of probation. And more insultingly than that, I think, is that they got a fine of $1. So, and that's that's something I'll, I'll bring up later. Um, so there was community outrage um, in, in Houston, and especially among the communities affected. Protests were held in response to these charges and the sentencing. Later, the case under federal review um, went under federal review, and Denison and Orlando, plus an officer named Joseph Janison were convicted of civil rights violations in the beating and killing of Torres. And that happened in 1978. <laughs> so, uh, and Janice was fired at that time too. So uh, um, nine months in prison was the sentence that this charge carried. Um, and, and this spurred, the Moody Park riot, which took place between May 7th and 8th, 1978. And this, this riot, um, began as a Cinco de Mayo celebration and it, and it, and it turned into a riot. Um, and the other thing I was going to say about the $1 is that at this riot, there were rioters chanting, you know, t talking, referring to the $1 fine and saying like his life is worth more than $1. Um, so, about 1,500 people participated in the riot, according to estimates, and some were throwing bottles and rocks at law enforcement officers who came to control the crowd. Um, stores at the nearby Fulton Village, uh, it's a shopping center, were set on fire and looted. Cars were flipped over and set on fire, some of which were cop cars um, from the reports. I'm reading that. So 28 officers Oh, I'm sorry, 28 rioters were taken into custody. One officer suffered a broken leg from the disturbance, and a news reporter and photographer team were beaten and stabbed, but survived. Many other officers and rioters were injured. But I mentioned the broken leg because that, that seemed to be the most severe injury that I read about f f on an officer. Apparently, some reforms f followed the Torres killing, including... The implementation of an internal affairs division, which I spoke of in the intro within the Houston Police Department. Um, observers also say the department worked to diversify the force and to employ more Spanish speaking officers. Um, I, I saw a, um, you know, I was just sort of interested to hear more folks talking about this. So I, I watched some YouTube videos of folks com commenting on it. And when like a almost like a a professor at U of H University of Houston was explaining that the department didn't want to ever admit wrongdoing because they want to maintain you know their authority and I, I realize that's not like a really complex idea and that's probably pretty obvious to folks like why they don't want to admit wrongdoing 
Um, but I, I think it's really interesting to just think about that concept, um, that, you know, is there a way to admit wrongdoing and maintain your authority in the community? I mean, does your authority depend on, and is it harmed by refusing to admit wrongdoing, whether it's on a department level or on the part of individual officers? So I wonder, like, does that work? I mean, does that really work at refusing to admit wrongdoing? Does that truly maintain your authority? Um, in, in terms of like a law enforcement or another kind of organization that's pretty authoritarian, you know, and maybe by design, I mean, I don't know how you can have, I'm sure you can have a more like community oriented policing. And there's certainly all kinds of efforts, you know, around the U S and other places to do that. Like, like this actual U of H professor was saying, what if we had, you know, cops that lived in the neighborhoods that they were policing? Cause that, that doesn't happen often, often because, um, folks can't afford to live in many of the neighborhoods that they police and they have to move out into the suburbs. I know that's an issue where I live in Austin is that we can't get our firefighters and, and police officers can't afford to live in the communities where they work. But if we do have that kind of buy-in and they're living there, you know, those, these are their neighborhoods. These are their neighbors. Like they behave differently. Um, and, and this U of H professor, and I apologize, I don't have his name. Um, also talked about putting more cops on bikes, bicycles, which I think is like a delightful idea, really, because that that is really, to me, like community policing. It encourages folks to interact and talk more and for there just to be a more livable, walkable, like human feeling to the streets. You know, that's I guess that's my like rose colored glasses viewpoint, but I still, I, I loved listening to him talk about that. Um, so, um, so I did, I wanted to address the Bayou crimes and maybe, maybe in future episodes, I can look at some other ones. Um, but as soon as I started looking into this, I was starting to hear press about, um, Jorge Gonzalez Zuniga, who, was a um, undocumented farm worker from Mexico who grew up and went to high school and graduated from high school in um, Edinburgh in the Rio Grande Valley. And um, so the press, it's my understanding that Mexican nationals can often have, and I apologize that this is incorrect, but I am a white girl and I don't, I don't know everything there is to know about the the culture, but it's my understanding that often there will be two surnames with Mexican nationals and you will have a surname from your father and from your mother. And so there will often be three names, your first name and then two surnames. And that often you will drop the last one and you will just go by your first. And then that, that I'm not, I'm not sure which is the mother's and which is the father's, but so his proper name is Jorge Gonzalez Zuniga but in the press, he's often called Gonzalez. So, um, and then in some of the court proceedings and the documents I saw, they use the surname Zuniga, but it's the same person. So I just, if folks want to look this case up, I just wanted to say that about his name. Um, so Gonzalez, um, 
was arrested for violating the curfew imposed to control coronavirus spread. Um, that's one of the reasons he was he was arrested. And, and I think this case is really fascinating right now because it, it's very recent. I, I've had a lot of trouble. I mean, I can find sort of different iterations of the same information, but there's not a lot to read about right now. But um, I often find that when I want to read about recent cases or hear more about them in podcasts, they're, they're not often covered right away. So, but I thought it was interesting to juxtapose this case with the one of Torres because of the similarities, but also the timeliness of this one with that he was actually arrested for breaking curfew that's imposed as a result of coronavirus. And I know everyone or Texans who are listening to this are going to, you know, um, El Paso and the Valley have been very hard hit by the virus. So the officers, you know, were arresting him because he was breaking curfew. He was also arrested for public intoxication and disorderly conduct. So, um, you know, let's just get that out of the way right now. Mr. Gonzalez was extremely intoxicated um, during his arrest. And so, um, but that doesn't excuse what happened to him whatsoever. But it is something, you know, that that uh, is important to note. And, you know, the combination of what happened to him and the fact that he was intoxicated, you know, I'm sure it played a role in what, in like, physically what happened to his body and, and how he responded. So on April 11th of this year, 2020, Mr. Gonzalez, age 23, went to a cookout at an RV park near the Edinburgh High School that he, the Edinburgh High School that he graduated from. His wife reports that the couple really was needing to get out after a long period of time in isolation, um, which I, you know, I understand that. <clears throat> I'm sure a lot of listeners, you guys understand that. Um, so according to press, I read principally a New York Times article um, written by, oh, I don't know if I have the name right here. Um I don't see it, but I, I maybe I can. Um, oh, James Dobbins of the New York Times. Um, so, according to press, Gonzalez drank twelve beers and passed out on the ground at this cookout. Um, three Hidalgo County Sheriff's officers responded to a call reporting that tenants of the RV park not. Not Gonzalez or his party, but some other folks living in the RV park were arguing. So the cops were called for that um, dispute. And after they arrived, um, they they were called to the park. They arrived at 2 a.m. and they found Gonzalez passed out on the ground. Um, Sergeant Trevino of the sheriff's office arrested him. First, they they told him, hey, man, go sleep it off, you know, find find somewhere to sleep. Um, and, you know, like they were I think they were trying to just get him to sleep it off and get out of sight, you know. And apparently he wandered around the park for some time, 
knocking on doors. I don't know if he was disoriented. Um, there's not a lot of information, but there are some comments. It's, it's sort of other folks saying he was wandering around knocking on doors. So that's what um, compelled Sergeant Trevino um, to arrest him. That and learning that he did not live in the park. So I think it was acceptable to them not to arrest him initially, thinking maybe he lived there. Um, so it sounds like they gave him a few chances to like get out of sight, but I guess he didn't have anywhere to go, and the cops are there sort of wanting him to disappear. So um, so later, he did get a chance to tell his sister that he ran because he knew that the police department cooperates with ICE, the Immigration and Customs Enforcement. So um, he did run after realizing that they were about to arrest him. Um, Deputies tackled him. But I will say that several witnesses say that um, Gonzalez did not resist arrest once they tackled him, he allowed them to cuff him. Um, Jesus Reyes, a tenant of the RV park, um, is quoted as saying, one deputy picked up his hands from the back, another tripped Gonzalez, and the third punched or pulled Gonzalez's head. So Gonzalez fell headfirst to the ground and appeared to be unconscious by several people watching. Then Reyes, this observer, reported hearing a taser and shrieks coming from Gonzalez. Another witness said that the officers next walked Gonzalez to the patrol car and he was cuffed and shackled. So when they say shackled, I'm assuming that means he has leg restraints on as well. Um, And when they reached the car, Gonzalez collapsed. One deputy kneeled on his neck and another kneeled on his back. <sighs> Deputy Cabrera is seen on dash cam. So I guess there's three officers on him right now, but Cabrera is seen on dash cam pulling Gonzalez onto the back seat. And there's, they, they frequently say, describing this action, chest first. So I don't know if he grabbed him by his shirt but I, I'm assuming, and, and please don't be mad at me if I got this wrong, but from reading about it and then about his injuries later, it sounds like they, he pulled him with such force by his chest that it snapped his neck. Um, and then Gonzalez is heard saying, pick me up. You paralyzed me. I am not breathing. Once they reached the jail, Gonzalez could not or would not. And I don't know. I mean, this is just what the article said, would not. I mean, I'm I'm not sure at this point if it was possible for him to stand, but he he could not stand. Um, booking officers deemed this to be, you know, from their perspective, uncooperative behavior. And in fact, at this time, and I don't have any other details besides the sentence I'm about to say, but... A nurse in the jail cleared Gonzalez for detention, meaning he's healthy enough to be detained in this jail. So so at the time he is admitted into the jail, he is not really. 
he's in there for 20 hours before he receives medical attention, just as a foreshadowing. Um, five hours later, after his um, booking, Gonzalez was wheeled into the shower and at this time told officers he could not move. He was dressed and left in a detox cell. I guess it's the um, practice to remove their clothing and put them in the orange jumpsuit. So that's what they did at this time. He was dressed and left in a detox cell. A uh, drunk tank is what it's called um, colloquially, I guess. So 20 hours after his arrest, an officer, Williams, who had training as a medic, was the very first person who discovered his injuries and, and took some action. Um, and we're now to Easter Sunday, which I, I find this all kind of eerily similar because um, uh, these are folks from minority communities. I mean, it's it's different to say that in the Valley because it's not, it's not, uh, these folks are not minorities in the Valley. Um, but uh, they're people of Hispanic descent. Um, one is found dead on Mother's Day. The other is, you know, going through torture and detention with serious life-threatening injuries on Easter Sunday. Um, and they're both in police custody when these things occur. So, so 20 hours after his arrest, an officer, Williams, who's trained as a medic, discovers Gonzalez, his injuries, and um, he he asked Gonzalez, are you OK? And Gonzalez says, my neck hurts. And you will see um, and I hope to um, set up an Instagram uh, and put some photos up because his booking photos, he cannot hold his head up. You can see people with gloves on holding his freaking head up. OK, <laughs> um, my neck hurts, he says. So Williams sent him to the hospital um, doctors found he had a crushed vertebra, a body temperature of 82 degrees. And I, I read some other places, you know, he officially sort of had hypothermia. So I don't know if that's, if your body starts to cool when you, when your brain function, you know, I'm not sure what part of pro the process that is that his temperature would be low, but I'd be interested to read more about why that happened. And he was unable to breathe. He was, he was put on a ventilator he had uh in in days following that a heart attack his brain was deprived of so much oxygen that um he ended up dying on July 15th um his family is suing the county plus four sheriff's office employees but a grand jury did not choose to return an indictment and there's been you know it's, I mean, it's as there should be, there's outrage on social media. There's been marches and other kinds of activism, but, um, I think this is so recent. There's not really anything more to report on it, but, um, I did see one gentleman on YouTube talking about it. Um, and I wish I could tell you his name, but I, I don't, I don't remember. Um, but these two cases, Gonzalez and Torres are very sad and um, unfortunately are part of the fabric of the history of our state. And, um, you know, I hope that I don't want to alienate any, any listeners, but I do, I do feel like 
with the news that we got yesterday with the election of Joe Biden and Kamala Harris, that there is going to be some more sustained attention to, um, you know, racial justice and equality and that we can make these crimes, you know, extremely rare to non-existent. Um, and I think, I think it's, it's hard to say like extremely rare, right? Cause why we want them to ever occur, but I guess I'm just saying that we, we have to have a police force in my opinion. You know, we, we have to have, I mean, I guess we don't have to, I mean, I'd love to dream about a world where we didn't, but as long as we have folks that we are arming and charging them with protecting us, there's going to be, um, mistakes made and there's going to be maybe, you know, some questionable actions taken just because of the authority that folks have, that, that they have to have really to, to wield weapons and to protect the community, like from horrible crime that is happening all around us. So we do need these folks, but it's, it's almost like it's a tough thing. Um, and that's why we have things like internal affairs and and we have checks and balances on this kind of power that that some sectors of sectors of our society you know are imbued with so i guess it's just a, a we have to trust in the system and design it in a way that it will balance out and we can deal with problems as they come up so anyway that's my two cents. And I hope that, um, folks have enjoyed learning about these and, um, I appreciate you listening and I'll get better at this. I'm just a little nervous and, um, I'm sure my delivery is pretty choppy too. So I'm going to work on it. But anyway, I'm sending you guys love from the great state of Texas. Bye.